on the Legal Economic Nexus podcast, Michigan State University institutional economists Eric Scorzoni and Sarah Klammer explore the work of heterodox and institutional economists. Institutional approaches to economics have a long history going back over a century, but are becoming even more prevalent since the trauma of the Great Recession, global financial crisis, and now the COVID-19 pandemic. We will be interviewing current thinkers from the fields of economics and the law to gain insights into important new research, approaches, and tools to understand the economy. Welcome to the Legal Economic Nexus podcast. Sarah, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. How about you, Eric? I'm very good. Thank you. I did want to take a minute to recognize, uh, unfortunately, at Michigan State University, three students lost their lives. In a shooting recently, I did want to recognize those students, Ariel, Brian, and Alexandria, and also some thoughts for the students who are still in the hospital. There are five students currently in the hospital. And unfortunately, Michigan State University has joined the list of places in the United States where a mass shooting has occurred. In heterodox economics news, I do want to point everyone to the heterodox economics newsletter. Unfortunately, Our friends there have, the university there has had a ransomware attack, so they're unable to send that out via email. So I am trying to push the word out for them because it is listed on the Heterodox Economics website, but they're not able to send it via email. And there were two things there that I thought were important to note. The 35th Annual European Association of Evolutionary Political Economy, that's in Leeds, England in September, so something to put on your calendar. And the other one was the 25th Annual Conference for Association for Heterodox Economics in Cambridge. That's the English Association, and that's in June 2023. So with that, we'll go ahead and get started with our interview. Recording at night, but I want to welcome our guest, Philip Anthony O'Hara. He's the Professor of Political Economy and Director of the Global Political Economy Research Unit at Perth, Australia, and author of the new book, Principles of Institutional and Evolutionary Political Economy, Applied to Current World Problems, which was by Springer in 2022. Phil, welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much, Eric and Sarah. Thanks. So we'll go ahead and get started. Sarah, why don't you take the first question? Yeah, so I just want to start with a little bit of the motivation behind you taking the time to tackle this truly massive volume. I understand you have two more volumes in the works behind it, but could you tell us a little bit about this first one? Yes, the first one on the principles and applications, Sarah. Uh, Well, I've been working on principles ever since I started my PhD, so I did start to look at some problems uh, like, uh, for instance, the global financial crisis, the deteriorating economic conditions around the world, particularly in America and Europe and Australia, from about the 1970s onwards. So that was my PhD. And also other things such as climate change, HIV. And so I realised that it actually helps if I apply some principles to looking at these problems. So I kept on reading on, for instance, the global financial crisis, and these principles kept on bobbing into my brain. So every time I read on the crisis, I realised that I kept on thinking about the principles that may be used to help understand the global financial crisis. And so the first one that came to mind was history. You have to situate the global financial crisis historically. 
Because if you don't do that, you run the risk of not understanding it. The global financial crisis uh, was very much linked to the earlier crises, 1974-5, the so-called oil crisis, the 80 to 82 Tudor recessions in America and elsewhere, the early 90s recession, the dot-com crash of the 2000s and 2000 to 1, 2, 3, 4, and then, of course, we had the GFC, and later on the corona crisis and now, of course, the potential recession. So history is crucial. If you don't situate these things historically, then you really can't understand it. And so from that came other ones. I'll try not to deal with question two too, too much so that we have something to deal with there. But other ones also came up, such as hegemony and uneven development. So if we have to situate the United States and Europe within the global system, because the GFC actually was not a global crisis so much. It was mainly the highly industrialised countries during 2008, 2009. And then we had Europe coming in with their Euro crisis, 2010, 11, 12, etc. But Africa, particularly Africa, really wasn't anywhere near as much affected than the rest of the world. Another one that came up a lot was circular and cumulative causation, that everything seemed to be multifactorial. It was a very complex problem, the GFC. You couldn't understand it by one variable. You had to see how five or six interacted and how they tended to magnify each other to produce the crisis. Then I looked at other problems, as I said, climate change, HIV, corruption, and I found the same thing, that they're all multifactorial. And they tend, if you're looking at a problem, and that's surely what we should be doing, then you've got to look at the disequilibrium processes, the circular and cumulative nature of the problems. And so you never have equilibrium when you've got problems. It's always out of equilibrium. And so the idea of circular and cumulative causation was very important. And so eventually, I suppose, what happened was that I just started writing and, and these principles came in to help me, to guide me in the process and also to guide readers in the process of how to understand the global financial crisis then I added heterogeneous groups and agents, particularly for the GFC, the global financial crisis, because there were some technical agents at the micro level that you really wouldn't understand unless you uh, not only looked at the, the macro agents, you know, sort of capitalists and workers, if you like, but also the ones at the much more micro level. So the idea of heterogeneous groups and agents was crucial. And later on, of course, contradictions, whenever you've got a problem, Mario Bung, probably the greatest philosopher of the last 100 years, said what we should be doing is looking at problems, how to solve problems. That is really what uh, political economy and institutional economics is all about. We shouldn't so much start off with theory, but rather link the principles to the problems so that rather than having a long discourse on each of the, the principles, I tried to link the two together so that it became embedded in the problem whether the problem was the global financial crisis, climate change, HIV, corruption, et cetera, et cetera. And, of course, from reading Veblen and Schumpeter and Keynes, it's very difficult not to think about uncertainty because uncertainty, of course, is crucial to any problem. And innovation. How do you get out of this problem? You need to innovate. So Schumpeter and Veblen were very important there. And then, of course, we come across policy and governance, very much linked to that. So basically, I must admit, it was really when I was looking at the global financial crisis, 
and HIV and climate change that these principles kept on coming out of the literature that I was dealing with without them actually calling it a principle. How do you imagine these eight core principles when they're taught in a classroom working together with a standard microeconomics textbook? <laughs> well, of course, even orthodox economists have to look at these principles unwittingly. They don't talk about the principle of history. They try and situate things historically. They don't look at hegemony, but they talk about the United States of America, the greatest country in the world, etc., etc., versus China and the terrible conflict between those two. They don't call it the principle of hegemony and uneven development. They just talk about the issue. But I thought, why don't we raise a level to the raise the academic level a little bit? and talk about these things as principles applying to practice. They talk about things out of equilibrium. I mean, most orthodox economists are obsessed with equilibrium, but they don't see often the multi-causal nature of it and how they tend to reinforce each other. And then they don't go back to equilibrium. They go back to uh, equilibrium doesn't apply because you've got so many processes in motion that never go back to equilibrium because everything is dynamically evolving away from the current system towards a new state. So when things are currently evolving away from equilibrium, the notion of equilibrium is irrelevant, as Keldor said. And also when they, when they come to look at agents, they often tend to look at the representative agent. And there's no such thing as a representative agent in reality. You've got to look at all the concrete real people and groups of people that are involved in these problems like the global financial crisis, climate change, HIV, corruption, etc. And so I think the orthodoxy looks at the same sort of things, but they never call it a principle because it would question their own principles, i.e. marginal cost and marginal benefit and marginal utility which really are pretty much irrelevant most of the time because the changes are so rapid and major that the margin doesn't really come into play. I was curious if you either explicitly or implicitly thought about, because what I thought fascinating about your book was it really is pulling from so many different institutionalists, but even others, everyone from Veblen and Commons to Keynes and Schumpeter, were you kind of consciously trying to draw a synthesis together of these ideas, because I know certainly you're aware of how institutional economists have often debated each other a lot about which thinker is, is better or whatever. Were you kind of consciously trying to draw from, you know, Polanyi, you also draw from, were you kind of consciously doing that or was this just sort of a natural evolution of your thinking? It was very much, Eric, a natural evolution of my thinking. I mean, I'd read in my PhD and earlier about power about Veblen, I read all of Veblen's works, Marx, Schumpeter, Keynes, and the other institutionalists, Collins, Ayers, Mitchell, Grotschi, Duggar, Stanfield, etc., etc. And so I had all that, the Keynes, Marx, Marx, I studied ad nauseum, Keynes, same sort of thing. And so by the time I came to look at in the GFC, it was just natural. They just sort of sprung into my brain. And when I looked at HIV, it was a good example. Again, they just became obvious that the principles were just embedded in everything that was to do with that. And similarly with climate change, very much with climate change, the principles were talked about in the literature, but never called a principle. 
<laughs> so mm -hmm. it was really just a purely natural thing because I had already had all the literature embedded in me for 20 years. And so reading this material, the major themes uh, fitted very nicely into all the categories of principles. And so it was actually very easy to enunciate that problem. Okay. Yeah, thanks. One thing we wanted to talk about, so you have these eight principles, you apply it to nine problems, which I thought was really nice of how you're really applying it to real world issues. So I'm curious on how, can you give us an example, because you address everything from artificial intelligence to climate change, which is great, something very relevant to students of today. So how does that system work? Maybe you could give us an example to work through of how that, how that's working in your book. Uh, in relation to one problem applied to principles, Eric? Okay. Absolutely. Yeah, of course. Well, possibly the climate change is a good one, perhaps. When I started reading on climate change, which was incredibly exciting, everything I read on climate change was exciting, it became obvious that one had to link it to history. And the history was so important that it really became not only a concept but a principle. Every major problem has to be historically situated. So I had to go back to the waves of climate change starting, you know, millions and millions of years ago and coming through the present. The waves tended to last around about 100 million years or 160 million years, and, and sometimes they drop to 80 million years. But the most recent wave of climate change is the only one that's caused by human beings. And so that historical Anthropocene was really critical because it was quite different from all the other climate events. So that was a history, if you like. Hegemony and uneven development, well, which of the major emitters? China, in absolute terms. The US comes up there in terms of per capita, quite high. Australia's pretty high in terms of per capita. Africa, of course, is not. <laughs> and also South Asia, yet South Asia and Africa are the most affected by climate change. Plus, of course, all those little islands in the Pacific and Indian Ocean, which will either disappear or largely have their coastlines eroded. So one had to really look at it from the point of view of the major emitters were from the core and emerging hegemonies such as possibly China is a critical one there. And the periphery really had very little to do with the cause of climate change because they haven't undergone industrialization. And so they need to be uh, given quite a bit of money to compensate them for the major costs associated with their climate. Uh, heterogeneous groups and agents. Well, a PhD student of mine linked together with his honor student and wrote a paper that published in Ecological Economics about the decimation of elephants in Africa which of course is linked very much to climate change, but it's also linked to humans killing the Africans and destroying their habitat, encroaching on them to build farms, which of course is part of the deforestation, is, is part of the whole process of climate change. And they looked at all the agents involved, the farmers, the elephants, the killers, the poachers, the Chinese and other merchants that are selling the, the ivory, and in my case, of course, I looked at many of the agents who tended to be in the core, business, consumers, mainly business and consumers are the main corporates, and the agents that are being decimated are the, are the animals and the plants and the climate, and you've got various other heterogeneous groups and agents. And the contradiction 
the contradiction, well, there are many contradictions. One is between core and periphery. The core causes the problem, periphery has most of the effects. But another contradiction, of course, is the movement from destruction of climate capital and the building up of durable fixed capital, i.e. buildings, machinery, consumer goods. And, of course, uncertainty. Uncertainty in relation to climate change is a crucial problem. There's been lots written about it by the IPCC, the panel involved in producing all the major reports. But they didn't publish a lot of it because they had dozens and dozens of working papers to help them with their analysis. But uncertainty was one of the crucial things. It's not uncertain that climate change is happening. It's uncertain as to how deep and prolonged the tipping points of climate change will be. And now we know that uncertainty is declining because the tipping points are getting closer and some of them are happening already, particularly in relation to things such as the Great Barrier Reef and other things. So the uncertainty is not that it's not happening, but rather the uncertainty is whether the tipping points of climate change will come sooner, i.e. before 1.5 degrees Celsius since pre-industrial times, which of course is happening, or at two degrees. And now we know that even now with 1 to 1.2, it's happening sooner. And in, in the Arctic region, the temperatures increased by more than two degrees. So some of those two degrees tipping points are also affecting the Arctic Circle. Innovation, policy and governance. Well, you can talk about innovations and policy and governance as much as you like, but very little has been done in, apart from, of course, wind power, solar power, trying to reduce some of the coal and steel production. But most of it is just on paper. We can't get to 1.5 degrees Celsius. And so we've lost the plot. We've lost the battle. I know this partly comes up in one of the other questions. But it looks like at, at this stage that we're up to, by 2100, 2.2 degrees at the minimum, but probably much more, 2.5 perhaps, since pre-industrial times. Since the average for 1850 and 1900 looks like on current policy and governance processes, it's above 2.2 degrees hotter by 2100. If we can dig in on this question of heterogeneous groups, I think that's a really interesting concept you have. And obviously, we know in neoclassical economics that typically, as you said, using representative agents and, and often very simplistic views of different groups. How would you advise someone who's going to use this kind of approach, specifically on heterogeneous agents? How detailed or descriptive does it need to get? What are some maybe clues or ideas of how you would do that? beyond just the usual kind of breakdowns that we have in economics. Yeah, I must admit, Bebbin was very good on this. Marx wasn't bad. He looked at capitalists and workers and transport workers and money capitalists and various other financiers and various levels of workers. But I think Bebbin went further. He uh, looked at the nitty-gritty agents of households, the house workers. He looked at the new rich people who were coming up. He looked at many others, farmers and innovators, the captains of industry. So Veblen's analysis was not so much modular, but looking at the society in which he was living at the time and trying to work out what the major 
groups and agents were at the time and how that changes through time. So he also looked at the leisure class, and I think that's what we should do, so that whether we're looking at elephants, elephant poaching, or whether we're looking at climate change, or whether we're looking at the global financial crisis or the current crisis, corona crisis, but also the current possible recession, we really have to look at the heterogeneous groups and agents, whether they're policymakers, whether they're business people, whether they're 1%, whether they're industrialists, whether they're groups of companies working together in collusion, whether they're consumers, whether they're financiers, whether they're brokers. As I said, in relation to the GFC, I had lots of fun talking about all the micro-agents, the brokers, the people who organise the contracts, borrowers, the lenders. You really have to look at not only the dominant ones, but some of the ones that are behind the scenes and, and may not be so obvious. And I think probably Veblen more than anyone, yeah, along the lines of political economy, did it better than the others. Schumpeter overemphasised the innovator, and then he overemphasised innovation within firms, but he didn't really look at a lot of the other agents involved, apart from capitalists and workers. Right, great. If we can also dig in on contradictions, which I think is an interesting concept, and it certainly seems to me that the standard economics view you don't really focus on contradictions. You focus on sort of, as you said, equilibriums and things kind of moving together. And specifically with, probably we could talk about the context of Veblen and how he thought about contradictions, but also maybe some of the other thinkers you've looked at as well as and how that's informed your notion of contradictions and how that kind of works. Yes, Eric, when I was doing my PhD, I, I must have read just about everything I could on the the deteriorating economic conditions around the world, particularly in the US, Europe and Australia, but also elsewhere, starting from 1974-5 and going on to the present. But when I did my PhD, it went up to about the early 90s. And contradiction kept on coming up. Everyone talked about contradiction. <laughs> whether they were institutionalists, there were a lot of papers in the JEI about contradiction, whether they were Marxists, Schumpeterians talked about creative destruction as a contradiction. If you read The Economist, they're always talking about contradiction, the magazine called The Economist. Every time I read it, I underline it and put it up the top, contradiction. The Economist actually is very good on contradictions. If you follow The Economist magazine, it started about 1842, about the same time as The Guardian. They're talking about contradictions in every issue. But no one called it a concept. Well, actually, some people did call it a principle, particularly the Marxists. But for them, the contradiction was a principle in theory. It didn't seem to have much link to reality. So what I tried to do was to link it to what's happening in the real world, if you like. Now, Veblen unwittingly used the notion of contradiction. He didn't call it a contradiction. He just talked about the vested interest as the common good, for instance. A great one. I mean, the Prime Minister of Australia, who was elected into power, talked about in, in his election speeches the vested interests and the common good. A lot of people do. It's sort of like a popular notion of contradiction, but very relevant, I think. Bevan also talked about industry versus business. Ad nauseum, <laughs> probably too much. Uh, <laughs> the contradiction between industry and business. He didn't so much link the two together and suggest they were interactive where industry might, well, they tend, he tended to think industry was dominated by business. 
after a particular time, about 1875 in America, and particularly after about 18, 1920 as well, business and finance started to become more dominant over industry. Then, he, of course, he talked about the contradiction of the capital-labour relationship. He didn't call it a contradiction, but he talked about the contradiction in real terms. And also the instrumental and ceremonial function of institutions, or the Veblen dichotomy, whatever you like to call it, which others have talked about, particularly Dale Bush and Mark Toole and others, and, and yourself as well. And if you look at his last book, 1922-3, Absentee Ownership, he looked at the city versus the countryside as a critical contradiction. As people move from the country to the city, if you look at China, of course, the whole development of China from 1978 to the present is fundamentally caused by many factors, but probably the most important one is the movement of people from the country to the city. People get killed, people get harassed off their property, people get their property burnt, they get bureaucrats telling them to leave, some of them leave of their own volition. But that contradiction between, between country and city is really a very crucial one and often ignored. So I think uh, if you look at Veblen and, and to a lesser extent Marx, uh, to a lesser extent Schopenhauer, Keynes looked particularly about the contradiction between business or finance, if you like, and industry. He, he looked at uh, how finance was dominating industry in a similar way to Veblen and Marx and even Schumpeter. So that was a crucial one that kept on coming up as the financial sector becomes relatively autonomous from industry and creates speculative bubble booms and crashes. Uh, that's a critical one of these uh, major contradictions. Thanks. So I noticed that you talk about power a lot in the book. Actually, Eric calculated, I think it's mentioned on what was it, 155 pages or something like that. I wondered if you could talk a little bit about how you think about power and how you think students should be thinking about power in the context of your core principles. Can you see that book, Sarah? Yes, I see it. Okay, so that's Bertrand Russell's Power. And when I was 21, I had to do a thesis, an undergraduate thesis. And so I did it on economic power in the brewery industry, which was a very intoxicating experience, let me tell you. And that was a crucial book because uh, he set out the nature of power in reality uh, very well, Bertrand Russell, probably the greatest philosopher we've ever had. And, of course, in Australia we had a guy called Ted Wheelwright who was a, a radical institutionalist, and he wrote a book called Radical Political Economy where he had a beautiful chapter on power, and so I used his delineation of power, looking at interlocking directorships, looking at market concentration, looking at the relationship between monopolies and oligopolies in the beer industry. At the time, Swan Brewery had a monopoly or, or uh, close to it in beer in, Austra in Western Australia and uh, also links to political parties and political processes. So power was my first thesis. It was what my first thesis was about. And for the rest of my life, I anticipated looking at power. <laughs> of course, I'd read Daniel Fussfeld. Of course, Daniel Fussfeld wrote one article on fascist democracy in America for the Review of Radical Political Economics, and one for the JEI on the military-industrial complex. I think he wrote several papers, actually, and so they were very influential about power in the modern capitalist economy. 
several other institutionalists. I mean, Mark Toole edited the book, I think, with Samuels on Power, which came from the Journal of Economic Issues, if I remember correctly. And then, of course, Duggar was very important in his analysis of power, which he thought tended to come from people's occupations, the roles they play in society. And he seemed to think that the power of business was much more dominant than the power of the education system, (laughs) than consumers and several other agents. So when it came to look at my PhD, I didn't actually deal with power a lot, except, of course, the military-industrial complex. What I anticipate doing in volume two of this work is having a whole big chapter on power. I've always wanted to go back and look at the whole literature, just sort of look at everything (laughs) that's possible within reason, including Eric Schutz's work on power. That was very influential for uh, when I did the Encyclopedia of Political Economy. Eric Schutz's article on power was one of the articles I put forward to try and get the encyclopedia published. And so that was a, a very influential article that I think some of it was dependent upon Samuel Bowles as well. So I realised that in this particular book, I put it in the index, but the publisher didn't uh, put any entries, pages for power. <laughs> it's sort of left with nothing there. I'm oh, sorry, not, not volume two, which is nearly finished. I'm just getting it to the publisher by the end of the year, but rather volume three will have one solid chapter on power where I do what I've always wanted to do, look at as much of the literature as possible on power and develop analysis which will help people investigate power in society and putting power as a crucial concept and principle, which I haven't done specifically in this book. Although if you look at page 48, you'll see that power comes up in relation to hegemony and other developments and specifically in relation to contradiction. Of course, power links to everything. And institutionalists have been probably the main ones uh, to look at power. But I'm afraid I'll have to wait to volume three for that really important chapter on power. Are you anticipating a 2024 release for the third volume? (laughs) No, the second one will come out in 2024. The third one has to have a chapter on each principle linked to reality. And then about five or six, seven chapters applied to problems. So I've done about five of the chapters on principles, got a few more to do, and then I have to apply them to some problems, which will take a few years, probably two or three years. So, so that might maybe coming out in four or five years. In institutional economics, there's been a long history about thinking about how much we can direct and change institutions kind of deliberately. Or, you know, I think Commons uses the notion of artificial selection you know, in contrast to what he views as Bevelin's more natural selection, which, you know, there's a lot of debate about that. But I'm just curious, uh, in your view of policy and governance, how you're looking at those issues in this book. And it sounds like you're going to be doing that in some future volumes as well. Yeah, thanks very much, Eric, for that question. Uh, Well, I edited a four-volume encyclopedia of public policy. So I learned a lot about policy. It took about five years reading every day on policy. But in relation to this volume, you can see on page 48, the eight principles and concepts. And number eight, of course, is policy and governance. And I think those eight are really core issues. Uh, The particular problems, the nine problems, 
I deal with issues of policy and governance uh, relating to each one. I can talk briefly about that. But I still think that these issues, these topics and concepts, I've got eight main concepts and principles, but actually about 72 overall, because in each of the eight principles, there are another eight underneath each of them. So that if you look at historical specificity, there, there are eight concepts and principles underlying that concept or principle. So while there are eight so core general principles, there are eight times eight <laughs> lesser but still very important principles, which anyone can bring up as a major principle, a core general principle, in another context. But in this context, I've tried to keep it relatively simple. And so I do deal with some of the others from time to time when it becomes absolutely crucial. So that in relation to policy and governance, social provisioning is a crucial one. I think in the olden days, we used to call it social reproduction, to enable social reproduction to continue. So I read a nice article in, in the Encyclopedia of Political Economy on, on reproduction, that we need to have the ongoing reproduction of the society in which we live. And so we need to provide you know, health, education, sustenance, housing, roads, environment, so that this society can uh, survive, as well as the ecological system. And the second one is standard of living and quality of life. Daphne Greenwood, who's published in the Journal of Economic Issues, and her co-author make a big deal about quality of life. And I think she's right that quality of life eventually will become more important than the growth of GDP and also the absolute level of GDP because it is really more important. While uh, GDP may be important for employment, I think eventually we'll find that quality of life becomes a good employer as well because we're dealing there with protecting the environment but also protecting communities and also uh, protecting the community in terms of the interaction between people as well as many other things. So the quality of life is a crucial one, not much emphasised by policymakers, unfortunately, in some contexts, particularly when they're coming up for election, unless there's one major issue that seems to be linked to that that we're dealing with. Participatory democracy was probably the main one that I was brought up to believe in, that we should include people in decision-making at every level where possible, particularly those who have warranted knowledge knowledge relevant to the field, but crucially, as Dale Bush would probably say, as we get included in decision-making, we tend to increase our warranted knowledge so that I think probably of all the principles and concepts in institutional economics and political economy, participatory democracy that was the one I was brought up to believe in more than any. So I think that's a crucial one to, to emphasise. Principles of community health. I read five or six orthodox articles on the corona crisis and they hardly ever talked about that at all. What they talked about were prices, markets and getting rid of governments. <laughs> you wouldn't believe it. Some of the articles I read were just crazy, absolutely crazy. And I talked about it in the book, one or two of them. But obviously, in relation to the coronavirus, uh, the corona crisis, we need to emphasise the, the principles of community health. Vaccines, we need vaccines. We need to have uh, developed 
preventative medicine to build up immunity. We need to often distance from others to stop the disease from spreading, et cetera, et cetera. Wear masks. And, of course, you know from where you live that there was uh, a major group on the other side who uh, didn't want to do that and were quite sure that the virus was a conspiracy uh, sent to America from China to kill Americans. Some people like it, that. <laughs> Functional finance is crucial. Uh, obviously, when you've got unemployment, you need to spend more and reduce interest rates. And when you've got high inflation, you need to do the opposite. Uh, when you've got both, well, that, that presents some stagflation. That presents a slightly different kettle of fish. So functional finance, as a learner, to some degree, the modern monetary theory, to some degree, is also crucial there. And the last three, of course, is social, ecological and and governance ethics. SEG is a crucial ethic that is spreading throughout business. Some of them talk about this ethic, social, environmental and governance ethic, purely to make out as if they're serious about it. But some firms are taking it seriously, looking at social issues and how it impinges on their business, looking at the environment, climate change, and also looking at governance. Businesses really need to not so much be self-governing, but rather to include governance issues in their in their priorities, which often not only go beyond profit, but may actually increase profit in many cases. And lastly, climate change mitigation and adaptation. It looks like a lot of what we'll be doing will be adaptation because we're no longer capable of getting to 1.5 degree Celsius increase in climate by 2100. So a lot of it is going to be adaptation. How do we adapt to 42 degrees 10 times more often in a year? Or where you're living, what would it be? 38? (laughs) Even London, I think, got a 40 degree in the winter, which is unheard of. So how do we adapt to that? And how do we adapt to a world where there are hardly any serious species Species extinction is happening rapidly. How do we adapt to a world where we hardly see any animals and the plants are disappearing? So they're they're crucial ones in the book. Uh, Of course, for each of the problems, uh, you have to identify what the problem is, i.e. corona crisis, climate change, corruption, policy and governance, terrorism, a crucial one, and you have to adapt the policies to the problem at issue. And I've tried to do that for most of them, even even the last one on love. I've written an article on love, which an Italian woman has taken my concept of love capital and published a book with that title and talked about me in the introduction, and it's been translated into English. And my other other concept from that is holistic love, which you've probably already heard about. I've developed that in much more detail. And what we could do is get statistics on how people engage in interpersonal relations. Because at the moment, we don't really have much. So a crucial policy endeavour in that regard is to get more statistics on how people interact in their interpersonal life without invading their privacy (laughs) any more than is already being done. (laughs) So that's obviously there are general principles of policy, but with each problem, you've got to deal with it on a case-by-case basis. Great. A couple ad hoc questions for you, but I want to... If I had to put you on the spot, you cite a lot of authors in your book, but can I get you to pick, you know, who's kind of your favorite economist? Who's the one you've learned the most from or someone either alive or dead? But if I put you on the spot, which one would you choose? 
Well, the ones that are dead, uh, you know, I started off looking at Marx because I, in my honours thesis, I looked at Marx's business cycles and crises. And then when I did my PhD, I fell in love with his circuit of social capital, which is how businesses get a profit. But also on my PhD, I, I realised that social structures of accumulation have to do with institutions. And in 1974-5, in the early to mid-70s, the institutions of the US and Europe and Australia and many other places just basically declined. The, the family, divorce rates doubled, finance became a problem. We had speculative bubbles. We had major recessions from 74-5 through the early 80s early 90s and 2000s. And so I had a look at the long wave downswing, first the upswing from 1945 to 74.5 and then the downswing therefrom and looked at the institutions. And then I realised that Devlin was very important. So I had to basically read all of Devlin. Then, of course, I read Toole and Samuels was very good. Dugger and Stanfield were probably my favourite institutionalists. Dale Bush... You know, I could go on and on. Sure. Really, really, uh, they were lovely people and, and great scholars and everyone in the Association for Evolutionary Economics was very, very supportive and encouraging. So there's some of my favourites. Schumpeter, of course, I had to read Schumpeter because he had a theory of long waves and so I learned a lot about Schumpeter. And then when I was teaching the history of economic thought, I had to read a lot on Keynes and also the physiocrats. So I realised that really... Much of this comes from the physiocrats. The physiocrats had the very first circular flow diagram, the first major one, looking at the relationship between business and consumers and farmers and manufacturers. And Marx looked at that and said, oh, my God, this is the most brilliant idea in economics ever developed. So he built on that and Schumpeter used that. Veblen, of course, had a similar thing with his... uh, industry-business relationship, and Keynes, to a lesser extent, had to look at the relationship between these sectors of the economy. So that circular flow diagram taught in economics tends to ignore the, the structural institutions. They tend to look too much at the flows between them, the monetary flows and the flows of goods. And what institutionalists are saying is you've also got to look within each of the institutional relationships as well as look at the interaction between them. So whenever I talk about the circular flow diagram, I always call it a circular stock flow diagram (laughs) because we're looking at institutions while they're in dynamic motion. You have to look within them to see how it's operating as well as the flows between them and the interaction, the interdependency between them. So the principle of interdependency became a crucial one. Everything is interdependent. I learned that from pretty much all of these people that I've mentioned. The last question I had is, um, so you were president of Association for Evolutionary Economics. Do you have a favorite thought or moment from that time, you know, something you accomplished during your presidency? Yeah, that's a good question. Well, a number of things I did. I initiated two special sessions at the 2013 conference, which were poster sessions. I call them senior scholar sessions and people came along and looked at the posters that people had and went from one person to the other and investigating what their paper was all about and also looking at the the nature of the books and articles that they brought along with them. So I think that was the first time AFI had a more informal session. 
I paid something like ten thousand dollars to provide food, or was it eight, nine thousand? <laughs> so there was food, there was drink, and there were about twenty people presenting their posters and discussing with people there. And also, I, I must admit, the other thing, of course, I organised the conference, which was great. I had to somehow or other work down from a hundred papers to with the sessions that were poster sessions. That increased the number of participants by about 18 that compared to what we normally would have had. And then because I had to write a paper for the presidential address, I looked at corruption, which I'd always wanted to do. And so it gave me a great opportunity. This is one of the chapters of this book. The one on corruption was done because I had to present a presidential address. And so I read pretty much, like I said, in relation to the power article I had to read, I read, spent a whole year on that article, reading everything I possibly could, and then try to make sense of what corruption is. And what I found was that whereas most governments look at corruption in terms of bribery, actually corruption is much wider than that. And the really good corruption scholars looked at bribery. You cannot look at bribery without looking at say, embezzlement. You cannot look at bribery without looking at the other party, not just the government, but the corporation. The emphasis is often on governments and parties, whereas equal amount of emphasis should be given to the other party, whether it's corporations, whether it's individuals. And so that interaction between governments and the other party, or whether it's two corporations engaging in bribery or corruption, embezzlement, extortion. So what I found from that corruption paper was that, and I must admit a lot of the people who wrote along these lines were influenced by Plato, Aristotle and Socrates, who developed the Vedlinian idea of the vested interest versus the common good. <laughs> so I used that Vedlinian, but actually Plato, Aristotle and Socrates idea of the vested interest versus the common good as the basis for my corruption article. Fascinating. Well, thank you so much, Phil. We really appreciate your time. Thanks for joining us. Thanks very much, Eric, and also Sarah. Thank you so much for the opportunity, and have a great day. Thank you. So thanks. This is episode five of season two of the Legal Economic Nexus with Phil Anthony O'Hara. We have some exciting episodes coming up for the rest of season two. We're looking at having John Weissman, the most recent Bevelin Commons winner, it will be coming on about his new book. And we'll have one or two other episodes before closing out season two. So thanks so much. And thanks, Sarah. Thanks. Thanks.